my privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at a, a well-known story, the story of, of when Bartimaeus encounters Jesus. And uh, we're going to draw a few things out of that. We're going to... Um, we're going to look at the story and look in particular at three different groups of people or people within that story and uh, and apply some lessons to ourselves. It feels to me that as a church, we're stood on the threshold of something that is new. Yeah. And it's not just that we're in a new building, although that is significant, but this is going to be a new chapter in our history. And uh, if you haven't listened to the vision talk, the 2020 vision talk, which Rob did just about three weeks ago. And I'd encourage you to do that because what that does is paint a big and scary and therefore required faith filled picture of what is going to happen over the next five years. And uh, and hopefully what I'm going to bring today will speak into some of that, that with an expectation that as a as a church, we are going to grow in number, um, but we're also going to grow in what we see God doing amongst us and in our towns. So uh, that's where we're heading this morning. So if you could turn to Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho, and as he, that is Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray. Lord God, we... We do love your presence. We love that we can gather with an expectation of anything can happen in the next half an hour. And it did. You met us. You spoke to us. You picked individuals out lovingly to speak strength and encouragement and life into them. Father, we love you. We love you. And now as we sit and and listen to your word, would you speak so clearly to us? Father, I pray help me to communicate clearly what you've put on my heart for us this morning. And may we encounter you in just as radical a way as Bartimaeus encountered you those years ago. Amen. So Jesus then is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, The next episode, if you've kind of just sneaked ahead into chapter 11, the next episode is that Jesus goes into Jerusalem, sat on a donkey, the triumphal entry. 
And, uh, and so what that means is that this story is kind of pitched just ahead of that Passion Week, that week which would lead to the cross and then ultimately the empty tomb. And he's just leaving Jericho. I thought about preaching just about Jericho because it's a really interesting place, but I haven't got time. So, um, But what we need to know is that the New Testament Jericho is just a short way from the Old Testament Jericho, which is the famous one that fell down um, because God knocked it down. And the other important thing to note here is that Jericho is only about 15 miles from Jerusalem. So it's very close. This kind of on the way to Jerusalem, that's going to happen probably the next day or the day after. That's where Jesus is heading. And as he's leaving this city with his disciples and a great crowd, I love that, not just leaving with his disciples. No, he's leaving with his disciples and a great crowd. You know, they're all coming along for the journey. And there's this one man who's identified, a blind beggar called Bartimaeus who calls out to him, not just calls out, but properly calls out to him. So I just want to pick out a few points, really, about Bartimaeus. And the first thing is that Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus. He's a blind beggar. Blind, that means you can't see. And yet he recognizes who Jesus is. He heard that that Jesus was around. He heard that there was something going on. There's this massive crowd walking along in front of his pitch where he's normally begging. And he knows that someone special is there. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you do a quick read through the first 10 chapters of Mark, you'll notice that there are lots of things that Jesus is called. I'll list I think this is an exhaustive list, but I could be wrong. So, beloved son, Jesus of Nazareth, holy one of God, son of God, son of the most high God, teacher, carpenter, son of Mary, John the Baptist and Elijah, because they got it wrong, um, but they thought that maybe that was him. Uh, Lord, the Christ, son of man, rabbi, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, that is some list. There's a whole preaching series for us. But Bartimaeus is the first one in Mark's gospel to call him son of David. And what I find interesting about that is that if we then read the triumphal entry, which follows, we read in verse 10 of chapter 11, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That crowd then makes the connection that this Jesus is something to do with that David. And if we read Matthew's account of the uh, triumphal entry, we read that the crowd sing Hosanna to the son of David, the very title that Bartimaeus uses just days before. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, Bartimaeus, that's a kind of a non-name. What it means is son of Timaeus. And the, the uh, Mark helpfully writes that for us. So it says a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Well, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. And so this is the son of Timaeus. That's his name. That's how he's known. And he's a blind beggar. And so the son of Timaeus identifies the son of David. Love that. He recognizes something about Jesus that no one else had spotted. 
the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the learned Jews. No, a blind beggar, Jesus, son of David. This is the one who will sit on the throne eternally. eternally. They were all waiting for this person. And Bartimaeus spots him. And he was blind. So the first thing is that Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus. The second thing is that he's persistent. He calls out. He calls out so loudly and so persistently that he makes a nuisance of himself. So it says, uh, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, not just he cried out and said Jesus. No, he began to cry out. This is something that he starts in that moment and continues. And then around him, the crowd are just going, shh. Be quiet. Who do you think you are? You are a nobody. You are a blind beggar. You are just sat on the road in the way. Get out the way. This is the crowd. We want to be with Jesus. All you do there is sit and ask for handouts. You don't even come into the city. You sit there. And at this moment in the story, if I were hearing this, without knowing the end, I'd be thinking, well, this Bartimaeus, there's no way he is going to encounter the mercy of Jesus. There's no way. All around Jesus are this large crowd and his disciples, and this man is being told to shut up, to get out the way. And not just politely, but sternly telling him to be quiet. So what did Bartimaeus do? He kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. 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 He'd have been going wild. He was still sat down, by the way. Try doing that sat down. It's hard. I've tried. (laughs) But that's what he was doing again and again and again. Son of David, have mercy on me. I wonder how many of us would have just been tempted to give up. No one notices me anyway. So many people just walk past day after day, might get an odd coin or a little, you know, morsel of food that's thrown thrown away. But it was a bit of a, you know, rare chance even that Jesus would notice me. What was I even thinking? Crowd are right. I should just shut up. Just let them move by. Can't even see him anyway, so why would he see me? And I wonder how many of us are are so easy to take on board the opinions of others and allow that to shape our pursuit of Jesus. But Bartimaeus impressively didn't. He called out more. He called out more. Calling, calling, calling. And then Jesus calls him. Jesus stops and said, call him here. And they say, okay, shut up now. He's calling you. Anything to shut you up. And so he jumps up and comes to Jesus. But his persistence, I think, is is something that we need to recognize. Would have been so easy for him to shut up and Jesus could have moved on by. 
So Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus. Bartimaeus is persistent, but Bartimaeus throws off any hindrances as well. I don't know whether you noticed that in the story. In verse 50, when Jesus calls Bartimaeus, it says, throwing aside his cloak. He jumps up and comes to Jesus. Throwing aside his cloak. I, I just imagine him kind of huddled at the side of the road. That cloak would have been such a significant garment for him. Would have been protection from the cold. Protection from the wind, the dust, the dirt that would have been kind of churned up. As this crowd are going past, there would certainly have been a lot of dust raised. It would not have been a pleasant thing to sit on the side of the street. If you think of our streets, it's not pleasant to sit on the side of the street. And we don't even have that much dust compared to this. But he'd have used that cloak to huddle inside and keep himself warm in the cold. He'd have used it as a cushion to sit on in the warmth to kind of ease his bottom. It was an important possession. And a cloak was really important. It's kind of more than a coat in our culture. And when Jesus commanded his, or sent out his 72, he told them stuff about cloaks. He said, don't take two. But they needed one. And so for Bartimaeus here, the first thing he does is throw off that cloak, this possession which he'd relied on for so long. But in that moment, it becomes insignificant because Jesus is called. And so he throws it off. And I love that there's no record of him going back to collect it either. So at the end, he gets healed, regains his sight and begins following Jesus, not immediately regained his sight, went to retrieve his cloak and began following him on the road. It doesn't say that. It just says that he begins following Jesus down the road. It's almost as if, I'm sorry if I'm stretching a point here, but it's almost as if that cloak belongs to his former way of life. And so he throws it off because now he's got no need of it. That part of his life was history. It was gone. And so he gets rid of it. And it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. So if you can turn there, Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. Say this, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, read about them, chapter 11 of Hebrews, amazing. Men and women of faith who lived in faith, awesome. Therefore, since we have that so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance or hindrance in some translations and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That deserves a round of applause because that is amazing. And I think what we've got here is a picture of Bartimaeus doing that, throwing off his cloak, throwing off the things that would hinder his passage to Jesus. And he fixed his eyes on Jesus. How do we know that? Because he regained his sight and who was he staring at? 
would have been Jesus. In that moment, all that mattered for Bartimaeus was meeting Jesus, seeing Jesus. The cloak, the rebuke of the crowd, the blindness, none of it mattered. All that mattered was that Jesus called him. And so I think this is the first thing I want to challenge us with today, is how does our reaction to Jesus compare to Bartimaeus' reaction to Jesus? Are we persistently pursuing him, crying out for mercy? Are we laying aside those things that would hold us back? What I like about um, this verse in Hebrews, or one of the things I like about it, is the fact that it says, laying aside every hindrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Not that the, the hindrance and the sin are not the same thing. We can have hindrances in our lives that are not sinful. They're just hindrances to fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let me give you an example. I recently found myself, um, I tend to get up in the mornings and, and read my Bible then. And I found myself checking my phone in the morning. I'd come down and I'd, you know, want to see how many emails have popped in over the night, see what's been happening on Twitter, check that all my friends were still friends with me on Facebook, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> check the sports results, whatever, whatever it is. And you kind of, oh, I'll just have a little look. And then before you know it, that time which I had meant to set aside for being with Jesus had been swallowed up in phone time. It's pretty rubbish. It's not that there's anything wrong with using a phone. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't doing any, anything sinful with my phone. But I needed to lay it aside because it was a hindrance to me fixing my eyes on Jesus. And hindrances can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. We can say, well, at the moment, I'm focusing on my marriage. At the moment, I'm focusing on this key piece of work that I need to do and get done. At the moment, I'm focusing on the fact that I'm trying to get that promotion. At the moment, I'm trying to organize my CV. At the moment, I'm focusing on the kids. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but they can quite easily become hindrances to to us fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the pressures of work and family life and just life in general can crowd in and become hindrances to us. I thought it was fantastic that Paul brought that word to us last week about leaving behind anxiety. I'd been working on this sermon um, just in that previous week, so I was pretty encouraged because I think that, that this is something that we need to keep going back to. We need to keep a short account on our hindrances. And we're going to have an opportunity to respond to this later. But before we leave Bartimaeus, I just want us to go back to Hebrews 12 for a minute. And notice that there's a corporate aspect to these verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is something we can help each other with. 
something we can help each other with, something we do together. Now you know about my phone and my issues with my quiet times. Feel free to say, Simon, how is that going? Seriously, don't you want me to pursue Jesus ever more closely? So by asking me that question, it will help me to put that check in that I'm doing that. It's not big brother watching you. This is family on a journey together. There'll be an opportunity to, for us to pray for each other later. So Bartimaeus, an impressive character, I think. But the second uh, player, if you like, in this story is the crowd. By the way, that was the longest point. So, you know, you'll get home in time before your dinner burns. But it was a large crowd in verse 46. That's how it's introduced. A large crowd. And so you can imagine the noise and the hustle and bustle and the, the movement and the clamoring for attention and the, the jostling and the shouting and the talking. You can imagine it. In fact, this crowd was so large that this account in Luke, if you read it, what follows is the story of Zacchaeus. And we know that he was short and couldn't get through to see Jesus because of the crowd, so ran ahead and climbed a tree. That's how big the tree was, the, the, uh, the crowd was. And the crowd were all trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, trying to be with Jesus, to touch him, to hear him. Genuine desire to, to be in his presence, to, to get something of what he was about. That's all good. But in doing that, they also prevented others from getting close to Jesus. And as we've seen already, they even told Bartimaeus to be quiet. He had no right to approach. And I just wonder whether there's a cautionary word for us here as a church in this picture of the crowd. That as we grow and get larger, it will be easy for us to crowd around. We'll be enjoying what we've got, enjoying the presence of Jesus, enjoying the fact that he, there are, there's healings going on in our midst, enjoying the fact that he, he meets us. But as we do that, there will be a danger that we don't notice the people on the edges, the people on the fringes, the people who are just looking in, who maybe come to that door and just peek in and go away for four weeks in a row before they're brave enough to open the door. People who are maybe wanting to come close because there's something attractive about it, but they don't, can't find a way through. Again, Paul Johnson last week said to us that there was a wonderful family feel to this church. Sometimes you can say that about small things. But this is, this is one of those cultural distinctives that we believe God has given us. And so as we grow in number, we must cultivate that family feel. Is part of what we do. But we're going to have to fight for it if we're going to preserve it. And I think it would be very easy for us to be overly concerned that we get a piece of Jesus, if you like. That we therefore inadvertently prevent others coming to him. Or even that we could go further and say, this meeting's not really for you, actually. Be quiet. Go away. We might not say it like that. The looks on your faces are kind of horrified. Good. Okay. But if you'd ask the crowd, would you ever stop someone coming to Jesus? I wonder what they would say. 
And if we see that kind of thing, because really what the crowd was saying is, you're not worthy to come to Jesus. Well, none of us are worthy to come to Jesus. But he welcomes us anyway. And by welcoming others in, that's a way we honour every single individual as a child of God, as a creation made in his image. So I just think we need to be aware of it as we grow. And actually, that's the kind of negative side of it, but it could have been so different. The large crowd could have helped others come to Jesus. I've seen it happen before in schools where you've got a situation kicking off and the crowd actually does a good job sometimes in gathering around the the child in need and ushering them to safety, the staff member or whatever. And there's a way here that in this story, the crowd could have heard his cries and they could have made a pathway. They could have opened up so that there was a, a clear route for the blind beggar to come to Jesus. It could have happened. It didn't, but it could have happened. An older lady I knew when I was growing up uh, was driving along the motorway. She was in the outside lane, in the fast lane, and she had a puncture. And uh, the car was, you know, obviously not going uh, particularly well at that point. And... Um, and what happened was there were a, a few lorries around and three lorries came and spanned themselves across the three lanes of the motorway and slowed down to her speed so she was able to nurse this car over onto the hard shoulder into safety. I think that's what a large crowd should do. Provide a place of safety for the vulnerable to come in and they can be shepherded into the very presence of Jesus. And that's a challenge to us. It's a challenge that we maintain the excitement of being family, growing, enjoying the presence of Jesus. And we maintain the ability to accept and to welcome and notice and care for those who are new and looking for Jesus. So I think the crowd teaches us something as well. So Bartimaeus, impressive. The crowd, unimpressive, but could have been so different. And then thirdly, Jesus, the most impressive of all, always. He's always the most impressive character in the story. Let's go back to that scene. Huge crowds, loads of noise, hustle and bustle, shouting, calling, bumping this crazy beggar, shouting out for mercy. Calling, calling, calling. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped. Love that. In the message, it says, Jesus stopped in his tracks. Jesus stopped. There's nothing like a cry for mercy that stops God in his tracks. I used to be a teacher um, in a secondary school and it was a while ago, so there was still time to go and get some lunch um, if you're a teacher. Um, but I used to sometimes at lunchtime walk to the staff room or, you know, and try and get a, a coffee that was a decent temperature to drink, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it would so often happen that as you're walking through this bustling corridor with people all over the place, that you'd hear this, Mr. Clay, sir, sir, stop, 
And you, it's hard to say it, but basically your heart would kind of sink. You really want that coffee. You really want that comfy chair. Just sit down five minutes. It's all I'm asking for. And yet you know this is a great opportunity to explain some algebra or to, you know, to really help with a, a deep pastoral issue, whatever it might be. But coffee, I mean, coffee. Would have been so easy to just carry on walking, to pretend that you didn't hear because of all the noise around and just beeline for the, but you would stop and usually get drawn into some inane thing or other. But I just wonder here, it would have been so easy for Jesus to not hear the cry. So easy just to walk on by. And it's not like he didn't have anything else on his mind. Within a few days, he'd be riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. A few days after that, he'd have been betrayed, arrested, dodgy trial, sentenced to death, crucified. He knew that was going to happen. And yet, and Jesus stopped. Amazing. Amazing. He stopped for this person. A few weeks ago at Life Groups Together, those of you who were there, you'd have heard Sarah Crittenden talk about her time in South Africa and the fact that she's going back there soon. And she challenged us with the idea of stopping for the one. Do you remember her using that phrase? I haven't been able to get away from that phrase. And I think this is exactly what Jesus does here. Stops for the one. Stops for the one. But this isn't just an isolated incident. If you think about what how Jesus lives, he stops for the one again and again and again. So he stops for the dead daughter of Jairus. He stops for the widow of Nain. He stops for Zacchaeus. He stops for the woman who was bleeding. He stops for the rich young ruler. He stops for Nicodemus. He stops for the woman caught in adultery. He stops again and again and again for the one. For the one. This would have been an ideal teaching opportunity to wow the crowd with another fantastic sermon on the path from Jericho type event. But he chose not to. He chose to stop for the one. Why? Because he has a heart of compassion, mercy and love that overflows for the one. And so he stops. And the second thing Jesus does is he heals. And that, of course, is kind of the main point of the story. So we should mention it, that this blind beggar at the start of the story doesn't exist at the end of the story. He's not blind. That's gone. A massive change has happened in him physically, but also spiritually. He's had mercy poured out on him. And this is something which troubles me at the moment. Because when I look back at my life, my my life doesn't quite match up to Jesus' life, uh, which is obviously an understatement. But what I mean is he healed people wherever he went. You read statements that you can kind of just gloss over and he healed all who came to him. What? But that's what he does. He heals, he heals, he heals. And so this blind beggar who cries out for mercy says, and what is it you want? I'd like not to be a beggar anymore. Okay. No, he says, I want to see. 
okay, we can do that. And that's not my experience. But things are changing. Don't you just love that story that we heard this morning at the start? God breaking out in John Lewis's. Yeah. And this is our victories as a church. Because just as there's this corporate aspect to throwing off hindrances and together fixing our eyes on Jesus, so there's a corporateness about us seeing healings. So if there's a story that Rob shares that's exciting, then we're all excited because we're in it together. Or Angie or whoever else is sharing these stories. I love the fact that people are getting healed in our worship. Well, if you've been here and worshipping, you are partly responsible for that happening. And that is a good thing. So this story, I think, challenges in a number of different ways. I'll just try and tie it together. I think the example of Bartimaeus challenges us about how we're pursuing Jesus. Are we prepared to leave stuff behind? And I just wonder whether some of you are thinking, well, last week I tried to deal with that anxiety and it was fine till Tuesday. And then I started worrying again. Anxiety does that. And Jesus does what he does as well. So I would encourage you to, if that's the case, don't worry about responding again. That is fine. But there may be other hindrances and you just want people to stand with you and pray for you because this is about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then as well, I think there's a challenge in here that as I talked about stopping for the one, some of you went, yeah, but I need that compassion put in my heart afresh. I've kind of just got a bit comfortable with it. And now maybe I don't notice in the way I noticed. Or I've walked on by when maybe I shouldn't have. I just wonder whether the Holy Spirit this morning is going to soften our hearts again. So if you're feeling that, then I would love to to stand with you and just pray that you would know the compassion of God. It's It's a hard thing to carry, compassion. When your heart overflows for others, it was costly. But God might want to do that in some of us. And I'd also like to pray for healing for people. And so if there are people who need healing this morning, then we're going to pray for you because Jesus is a a God who heals. Yeah. Yeah, just come that there. There's a number of different things in that in that sermon. I don't think it's kind of a, a one a one line summary sermon. But there'll be different things connecting with you. Maybe it's the example of Bartimaeus and you know that your focus is has just drifted a little from the face of Jesus. So now is an opportunity, just as the music plays, to kind of realign your gaze. It could be that you too have been challenged by this idea of stopping for the one and the example of Jesus, and you you know that you just need someone to stand with you and pray that you will have the strength to do that as the compassion of Jesus flows in you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. Could be that there's still some leftover work from last week about leaving behind these anxieties that would fit into the leaving behind the hindrances. And again, don't be embarrassed 
to come again and stand. All it says is that you're serious about this. That's all it says. And then it could be that some of you know that you need healing. All sorts of different healings, but Jesus is here to heal. So just draw near to, to God now. Just, I'll just be quiet and we'll hear the music and draw into his presence. And if you want to come forward and respond, then do. And we will stand with you and pray for you. wholeness and healing in you. And so God, we just now fix our attention on you. We fix our attention on you, Jesus. Just as Bartimaeus did, we cry out again to meet the Saviour.